So the Jebusites, right up to that point, Israel had never taken Jerusalem. Now if you read in the book of Joshua, um, there were five kings came and attacked Joshua, including the king of Jerusalem, and they beat them. But nevertheless, they didn't take the city. And then there's another time when they had a battle with the people in Jerusalem and they didn't take the city. So for probably getting on to 500 years, Jerusalem had continued to be occupied by the Jebusites. And you can kind of see a, a, a principle in this, is that um, the place where God really wants to be in in his fullness can be, for us can be the hardest place to get to. Um, so why... Melchizedek. Why am I saying it's Melchizedek? Well, who's Melchizedek? He is the guy who met Abraham after he'd gone and rescued Lot from a whole load of kings who came and invaded the Sodom and Gomorrah region where Lot was living before the cities were destroyed. And Abraham went with 400 men and I think probably of his own men plus uh, a king who was with him and they won the, the battle, seemed to be one side but obviously the indication is God was helping them and uh, the cities were liberated and Lot was rescued um, and then as he was returning from the battle Abraham was met by this person Melchizedek and it says he was priest of the most high God and the place where he lived was Salem now this is very fascinating we learn in Hebrews and you can get it from the Hebrew translation that Melchizedek translates king of righteousness Melchi meaning king and Zedek meaning righteousness so it's actually more than a personal name, it's a job description. It also says he's the priest of the Most High God. So you can tend to think that Abraham, he's the only God-fearing person in the earth in his time, but actually that's not true. We have this person, Melchizedek, who is the priest of the Most High God. He's very fascinating in the sense that he is very much a type of Christ. Some theologians suggest he is Christ pre-incarnate. I don't want to say he isn't, but I tend to think he was probably more a mortal human being, and I've got reasons for that. But he was a priest of God Most High. He, if, he was God's chief man in the earth. If he wanted to approach God you came to Melchizedek. He was the one mediator between God and man in that time. It doesn't say he was a priest, it was, he was the priest of God Most High. In the book of Hebrews, it says that his priesthood was higher than the priesthood of Aaron. It was a chief priesthood. Now, some Jewish... Legends suggest that Melchizedek could have been Shem, the son of Noah. We can't prove that, except that if you look at the ages of Noah and his sons, Shem actually would have still have been alive in the time of Abraham, so it is possible. And because Noah was basically the head of the new race of humanity on the earth Noah, and Noah was called a preacher of righteousness and then he basically became the overseeing priest over the new humanity after Noah died you could see that headship passing to his son Shem 
it's to me it, it would fit. Now I can't prove it, but it's possible. But the title Melchizedek means it was his responsibility to establish the rule of righteousness over the area where he reigned and basically, in effect, over the whole earth. It's a job description. He is king of righteousness. Where he ruled, righteousness had to be. He, was, he could not permit unrighteousness. And so he blessed Abraham. It doesn't say whether or not he offered sacrifice, but presumably he offered sacrifice and he blessed Abraham. And in the very next chapter, Abraham's having this dialogue with God, you know, you know, there's this servant in my house, he's going to be my heir, but you're going to, you know, you said I'll have, you know, my own offspring. So what, what's happening? And then the Lord gives him this promise and makes covenant with him. And he says he believes God and his faith is counted to him as righteousness. So if you put the two stories together and ignore the chapter division, I suggest the blessing which Melchizedek, king of righteousness, conferred on Abraham was the status of righteousness by free gift. And Abraham's faith ratified that. It's my suggestion. It would make sense. Interestingly, the place where he ruled was Salem. Who knows where is Salem? Jerusalem is the same place. So it's the city of peace. And this sort of takes you to what Paul said, that the kingdom of God is not food and drink. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews it says, his throne and his office is enduring. So Melchizedek, the man of that time, may be no more, but the office continues. And Mel, uh, Hebrews is saying Jesus now fills that office. So the person may change, but the office stays the same. And it seems like that office remained associated with Jerusalem, physical Jerusalem. Um, if you read in the time of Joshua, the king of uh, Jerusalem of his day was called Adonizedek, which literally translates Lord of Righteousness. So it's basically the same name. And I think actually another of the kings of righteousness of Jebus or Jerusalem at that time is it's got a similar kind of name. So it's um, and. Uh, theologians or biblical scholars such as F.F. F. Bruce and, and similar suggest that this, this, we could say, this dynasty or this office continued in Jerusalem. So basically, whoever was king in Jerusalem was Melchizedek. Now, in the time of Joshua, they're fighting against Israel. So there's obviously, they're not, it's like the, the priests, you know, they've fallen. It's fallen. It's a fallen office. It's an apostate office. And you could say the, the Jebusite stronghold, we could say, represents a religious stronghold with the form but no reality. So it's, it seems like the Jebusites, they understood this and they were saying, ha, 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 we've got the throne of Melchizedek, you can't come in here because we're God's people in the earth and who do you think you are? And so I could see, you know, in my little cameo there, uh, Joab challenging David, saying, you know, they're saying they got the throne of Melchizedek. And David's saying, oh, yeah. This really is a puzzle. What do I do? You know, some more nights of prayer. So somebody mentioned earlier Psalm 110. Let's go to Psalm 110.
And I suggest this is another key prophecy which David received. God's gift to David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch out your strong scepter from Zion. I think the language there suggests David didn't receive it personally himself, but could have been somebody like Gad or Nathan. So the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand and tell me your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. It is Zion, David. You heard right. It's Zion. Zion is the place. saying, rule in the midst of your enemies, and your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. So this suggests to me it's like it's probably in the time of uh, David reigning in Hebron. could have been before, but it's certainly before he was king in Jerusalem. We know he's looking forward to Jesus, but it makes a lot of sense for David in this context. So all the nation is going to gather to you, David, when you come into your throne. They will come, don't worry. They might be <laughs> not so happy with you at the moment, but the hearts are going to turn. We know that's what happened. Because the Lord has sworn. Now we read that in Psalm 132. The Lord has sworn. The Lord has sworn. When the Lord makes an oath, it's a covenant. It's covenant language. And in Hebrews, the Lord says, you know, the Lord swore by himself because he couldn't swear by anything higher. When the Lord makes an oath, when the Lord swears, he's saying, if I fail to do this, I will step down from being God. It's so strong. The Lord has sworn. The Lord is making a covenant with his own name and his own glory at stake. He will not change his mind. Aha, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. I don't know what the time sequence is when all of these things appeared. I'm suggesting it came sometime probably when he was a king in Hebron. But to me, this is a, a, a total key of wisdom for David. Because he, he's now able to say back to, to Joab, well, they may think they've got the throne of Melchizedek. Actually, God's giving it to us. God's giving it to us. So it says, David went up and they took the city. They took the city. They found this way in through the water channel, which seems to have been between an outer wall and an inner wall. Um, and when David put the crown of Jerusalem, as it were, on his head, he stepped into the office of Melchizedek. So that's why I'm suggesting he was prophet first, then king, and then priest. So when he, when he became king in Jerusalem, he also stepped into the priest's office, but not of the line of Aaron, but of the line of Melchizedek. And he stepped into the responsibility of king of righteousness. And so it starts to make sense when he's saying, let your priests be clothed with righteousness. And he understood that his kingdom was a kingdom of righteousness. And he understood that the Lord's throne was established on righteousness. And if the Lord was going to reign with him and through him, the kingdom had to be a manifestation of God's righteousness on the earth. And so we see in the history of David, you know, he did, you know, for Israel, there were, there were two areas of the land. There was the inner land where the Canaanites lived, and then there was the outer land which went right up to the Euphrates. And there were two different instructions from the Lord. The first instruction for the Canaanites was, you destroy the lot, man, woman and child. And they represent the demonic. There's no mercy 
for the demonic realm. And then the outer nations, the instruction from the Lord was, is when you go up against them, first offer them terms of surrender. If they don't surrender, you will fight them and you will conquer them. And they will become slaves and servants to you. But the instruction was not to wipe them out. And they represent humanity in this day and age. So the so this is, we could say, it's another type, another prophetic picture of Jesus and the church. Uh, so we, we wipe out the enemy whenever we encounter the enemy. But for people, we offer terms of surrender. The gospel is, is surrender to Jesus. He is the great king. One day he will come with his armies and he will conquer the whole earth. And he will establish the rule of his righteousness. You can submit to the rule of his righteousness now and he will give you the gift of righteousness and he will give you his nature of righteousness so that you can conform to his righteousness and be blessed in his righteousness. But for all who resist him, there is coming a day where he will resist them and he will prevail and he will establish the rule of his good righteousness on the earth. And so we see that happen in the time of David. Uh, some, some surrendered and made peace and some fought against him and resisted, but David always prevailed. And it was like, you know, the, the terms were this, um, I'm the king of righteousness, I hope you understand that. This is the office God has given me. So you can choose to surrender now and it, it will be really good because the righteousness brings the blessing of God. Or you can resist me and I will still fight against you and I'll still bring the rule of righteousness and it will still be good because the rule of righteousness brings the blessing of God. So which way do you want it? Do you want it good or do you want it gooder? <laughs> um, and when you, you start piecing together the bits of information in what David writes in his Psalms and how he thought about himself, how he thought about his throne, he clearly understood his responsibility in this aspect. So David became king and he became priest, but not of the priest of Aaron, but of the priest of Melchizedek. And this explains, therefore, why he dared put on the priest's garment and the ephod when he was bringing the ark into Jerusalem. Because under Moses' order, that would have been totally illegal. And an another corollary of all of this is that the office of Melchizedek through this event was brought into Israel, into the life of Israel. And it's obviously looking forward to Jesus stepping into that in the fullness of time. So, it's kind of an amazing episode in the wisdom and the purposes of God. It's a very significant moment. So David, he's got this prophetic understanding now. He goes up and he takes... The city, he brings the ark to Jerusalem with rejoicing. We read the scripture, he prepared a place and he pitched a tent for it. And he assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place. Um, so we've, we've kind of built up a bit of the picture and the rationale of why David did what he did. Not got a complete answer yet, but we're getting there. Um, so the question is, David's kind of settled in his heart, it's not Moses' tent anymore, but the question is, what kind of tent? Does he make a copy? What does he do? What does he do? So it's not that, 
And it's not that, although he's kind of thinking that would be nice. Do you think he, he put that up? Hands up. No, everybody's shaking their heads. Well, that one. Do you think that would have been appropriate? Maybe you went to the local outdoor shop and just got one of them. Or maybe something a bit more elaborate. Or maybe it was in the Boy Scouts and thought, that's a good one. seems to have been a suggestion, you know, a Bedouin tent, and I've just superimposed a picture of the ark on that, just to give an indication. Um, it certainly doesn't seem to have been an elaborate thing, because, you know, shortly after that, David's thinking, I live in a palace, God lives in a tent. I live in a nice palace, God lives in a boring tent. I think God deserves a lot more than a boring tent. Um, now, we, somebody mentioned it earlier, but what's, what's kind of interesting about how I've pictured that? Unconventional, you might say. Open. We're not told in Scripture whether it had a cover or it didn't have a cover. Um, I tend to think probably did have some doors which shut, but I don't think it had that heavy veil quite in the same way, Moses' tent. So it's quite possible, you know, it flapped in the wind and, you know, people would see the glory. What is clear that David did actually go in there and sit before the Ark of the Lord and see the glory. And we read, you know, one occasion when he's uh, alluding to that. And that would have been totally illegal in the covenant of Moses. So, you know, there's, there's numbers of counts why David should have been dead, but actually he's honoured for what he did. It's fascinating. And it's looking forward to that. Yeah. That's, that's the tent, really, which God had in mind. Particularly on a Monday morning when we're just waking up, we don't look particularly pretty or glamorous, do we? But we still attend the glory of God. That's the tent. That's where, that's where God lives. together some of the things we've said um, and then around this tent David established this 24-7-3-6-5 worship of praise and rejoicing before the Lord um, and we saw in Psalm 132 the Lord is saying yeah, this is the true priestly ministry to me praise and worship clothed in we could say Gifted righteousness, clothed in gifted salvation, clothed in heart change. See, the Holy Spirit settles on righteous people. Everybody in David's court seemed to be prophetic, seemed to be anointed with the Holy Spirit. So it's like 
this, this covering of the priesthood of righteousness, gifted righteousness to the nation. So God could come down with his presence. And there erupted this whole prophetic dimension, say, on all, at least all of David's court. It was amazing. You know, you read everybody's sort of seer or a prophet or um, anything. Wow, even we in the church, we're not, we don't seem to be operating at that level. No, I think God's changing something, but um, we should have at least that. But I'm also saying, how did David have permission to, from God to do all of these things? Because it was such a departure from Moses' law. So the key is, God was making a new covenant with David. So that was alluded to in that bit we read in Isaiah 55. So Psalm 89.3 says it in black and white. I've made, I've put it in red. I've made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. So swearing is covenant language. Scripture gives a principle Where the priesthood is changed, this is Hebrews 7, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. So a new covenant has associated with it a new priesthood which has associated with it a new set of rules. So we can say for David the rules changed. We can say a covenant is, I like to call it, it's a self-contained legal system which God gives by which we can relate to him. So Moses' covenant was a self-contained legal system and you could live within that legal system. The new covenant in Christ is a self-contained legal system and you can live in that legal system. Paul says if you choose circumcision... You have to obey all the laws of Moses. Why? Because he's saying, because you're choosing to put yourself in that legal system. Whereas Christ is a different legal system. It's a bit like um, Scotland and England's legal systems. We live in Scotland. Scotland has its own legal system. You know, much of it is similar, but there are some important differences. When the Lockerbie bomber was brought to trial... The trial was held in the Netherlands, but they created a small space of British sovereign territory for the trial. And because the, the jet came down in Scotland, the trial was according to Scots law. It wasn't according to English law. And when the Lockerbie bomber was released, he was released according to Scots law by Scots lawyers, not by English lawyers. So when you have a, an, you know, I work in business and you sometimes see this contract is according to English law or because I've worked in Scotland you see this contract is according to Scottish law and you need, if you're a lawyer you need to understand the differences and make sure you don't get them mixed up so this is what was happening for David he was being brought into a new covenant which had its own set of rules there were rules of righteousness but they were different rules than Moses' rules. And under Moses' rules, certain offences were capital offences. But under David's rules, certain rules, you could find forgiveness for heart repentance. And so Psalm 51 is the, we could say, the, the crux example of that, which is obviously, which is when, you know, he's repenting um, over the affair of Bathsheba, and he's saying, sacrifice and offering you have not desired. Animal sacrifices, they don't do it. Lord, the sacrifice which you have desired is a broken and contrite spirit, and Lord, you've, you've done me in over this. You've, you've nailed me. You know, when Nathan came to him, he got nailed, and David's heart broke, and he, he, he poured it out in that psalm. And then, and he prefigured in that psalm the New Testament believer. Because 
Under the law of Moses, you could not pray that prayer. Well, you could, but it wouldn't have availed you. But in Christ, it avails us. And he prayed, take not your Holy Spirit from me. So there's always grace, and there's always multiplied grace, no matter how heinously we may, we may fall, no matter what we might have done in times past or times present, there's always grace, there's always mercy in Christ, and David prefigured that. So the rules changed. So this is why this scripture became so key in that Council of Jerusalem. So going back to that, see... Um, the Gentile church had been increasing, and um, but the Judaizers were getting a bit unhappy about the the Gentile believers, and they were saying, "Well, no, they, they need to be the same as us. They've got to be circumcised. They've got to obey all the laws of Moses. They can't eat pork, and uh, especially not bacon." Um, and and. Peter was not quite so sure, and Paul and Barnabas were quite sure about it. No, it's not like that. We understand that they're free. And so there was this big debate one way or another, one way or another. And, and Peter sort of says, yeah, well, actually, when I was preaching to Cornelius, the Holy Spirit invaded, and he didn't, I didn't give him permission, but he invaded. I just had to back off, and if God accepted them without my permission, who am I to argue, you know? Um, so God accepted them on the basis of their faith, not on the basis of them conforming to the law of Moses. So Peter came down on that side. And then James, as I said, he stood up and he said, yeah, I agree. This scripture says, I'm restoring the tent of David and so that the rest of mankind might find the Lord, the Lord. And they all said, yeah, that is the key scripture. That answers it for us. And we go, huh? And they went, yes. And the reason why they went yes is because I suggest they understood David was in a different covenant and he had a different set of rules. The rules had changed in Christ. It was a new covenant. It was a new legal system. You can choose to live in one or you can choose to live in another. And this is highly important for prophetic people because if you choose to position yourself in the old covenant, you will bring old covenant prophecy. But if you choose to live in the new covenant, you'll bring new covenant prophecy. And you can choose. And people get mixed up and you see Old Covenant prophecy coming, which is bringing you know, damnation and brimstone and what have you, whereas God actually wants to bring grace. He wants to bring grace. Paul says, you know, note the, both the goodness and the severity of God. God is a righteous God. He demands utter complete righteousness. There is an enormous blessing for those who attain righteousness. How do we attain righteousness? By faith we receive the gift. But for those who don't attain righteousness, even the slightest infringement counts against you and the whole weight of the law comes and damns you. So Paul is basically saying, you can choose to live in the goodness of God, which is the new covenant, in the gift of righteousness, or you can choose to live in the old covenant and you get the severity of God. You choose. And so they, they wrote some instructions to the Gentile church basically saying you're free and um, just observe these things so you actually you don't offend the Jews who are living in your city. Because actually, basically, you are free. Just live out the righteousness of Christ. Um, so, why have, I, why have I gone back to that? It's because if that scripture is used in the New Testament in that context, we need to understand why it applies in that context before we go ever into worship and prophetic worship and all of these things and 24-7 prayer and 365 worship. Um, we need to explain that, and it's because it's covenant. We also need to understand why doing what David did in an Old Testament time is valid for us in the New Covenant. It's because it's covenant. And in actual fact, David's covenant is basically the beginnings of the New Covenant. 
because Jesus is the literal descendant of David. The covenant with David was concerning his kingship. But it was also embraced this priesthood of Melchizedek. So it brought a covering of grace for Israel. And it was for the greater David who was Christ to step into so that not only would it cover Israel, it would cover the whole earth. So it's basically the same covenant and the same throne. The kings who were in the intervening period somehow didn't get it, but they could have operated in the priesthood of Melchizedek. Um, So when David brought the ark into Jerusalem, we find he offered these sacrifices and then he, he gave gifts to the people, you know, raisin cakes and figs and so on. But So there was sacrifice on one occasion at the tent. But the, the sacrifices which continued at the tent were sacrifices of praise and worship. So this is, again, it's a type of Christ. Christ is the one sacrifice for all time, and then the appropriate response from Christ's people is praise and worship. And David actually appointed people to worship the Lord in this way. And not only did David appoint them, the Holy Spirit anointed them. So they became empowered worshippers. Empowered worshippers. Because they were anointed as prophets. They were empowered to do what they did. And so we have records of what they brought in the Psalms. At least some of it. You know, I can just imagine three o'clock in the morning. Oh, it's tough to, this morning. It's tough, but just let's just Lord is worthy. Let's just keep worshipping the Lord, guys. Let's just keep worshipping the Lord. And then suddenly a prophetic thing would come into the spirit. Wow, get this down, folks. Just write this. I'm singing it. I sing it. You write it. So they were singing. Wow, David, you should have seen what happened last night. It was really tough, but we just kept pressing, and the Lord just broke through to our spirits, and we got this new thing, and it's Psalm 136, or whatever psalm it was. I think many of the psalms could have well have been birthed in that way. Um, you know the song, Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord? I think that we sing it and we put it on the overheads and such, but I think that was birthed in exactly the same way. It was a spontaneous new song which happened to get written down and now we sing it all over the place. Just go to a couple of quick scriptures. Psalm 68, alluded to this earlier. Let God arise. In Psalm 132 we had that same expression, let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered, let those who hate him flee before him. Now remember when they were moving the ark in the wilderness, when the ark started its journey, you know, the clouds started moving so they, they would pick up the ark. And they would say, let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. So they're picking up that phrase, saying the ark is on the move again. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Where is it on its move to? You know, as smoke is driven away, as, so drive them away as wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before the Lord. But let the righteous be glad. Let them exult before God. Let them rejoice with gladness. Sing to the Lord. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts. Um, let's skip down to verse... 
15. Well, if you look at verse 7, actually, it says, Oh God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, heavens dropped down rain, and the presence of God, Sinai itself quaked. So it's looking back to when the Lord was moving at Sinai. But then we skip to verse 15. It says, A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. I think that's Hermon. Mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? What's the mountain which God has desired for his abode? Zion. Zion, Jerusalem. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. Literally, it says twice 10,000. If you read in... Um, Deuteronomy 33, it says, When the Lord came to Sinai, he came with 10,000 of his holy ones. And David is saying here, Now the Lord is coming with twice 10,000 of his holy ones. So it's a new occasion when the Lord is moving and there is a new glory. There is double the glory. It's a new covenant and there's more glory in this covenant than Moses had in his covenant. There's twice as many angels. The Lord is amongst them as at Sinai in holiness. You have ascended on high, you have led captive your captives, and you've received gifts amongst men, even amongst the rebellious, also that the Lord God may dwell there. Verse 21, it talks about the procession of the peoples, the rejoicing and people singing, even the, the maidens beating the tambourines. This, this is a psalm of celebration when they brought the ark into Jerusalem. This is when David was dancing with all his might before the Lord. This, was, this is a description of what was happening. It says, yeah, Herman, you, th you might think you're a high mountain, but this, this lesser mountain, this apparently humble mountain of Jerusalem, is the place where the Lord is causing, causing his name to dwell and uh, his glory is being established and there's glory coming and this glory is more than the glory which came at Sinai, magnificent as that was. Can we catch hold of that? That what was happening with David had more glory than Moses had. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 18, because it says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched in the blazing fire. It's basically speaking of Sinai. But verse 22 says, You have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the city of the living God. You've come to the heavenly. Jerusalem. So in Christ, not the natural Jerusalem, but the heavenly Jerusalem, of which Zion, we could say, is a prototype. And to myriads of angels, the same thought again, to the general assembly, which is like all the peoples gathering to David, or it's like all the nations gathering to Jesus, and the church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all and the spirits of righteous men made perfect. So some take that as, you know, the cloud of witnesses in the heavenly places, people who are completed in heaven. I suggest whilst it includes them, it includes us. It includes us. Because we are born again of the Holy Spirit with a righteous spirit. You know, we can still sin, but what is born of us has the image of God. What's born in us is perfect in the eyes of God. Now, I'm not preaching sinless perfection, I understand the distinction here, but nevertheless, what God has birthed in us in the new birth is perfect. Can you take hold of that? Because if it was imperfect, it would be incomplete. But Christ's work is finished, Christ's work is perfect. And so we, we live by faith 
in who Christ is for us. We don't live confidence in our own flesh, but we put full confidence in Christ's nature within. And what the writer to Hebrews is saying is, is that what David started to live in is coming to fullness in Christ. It had a covenant there which is coming into fullness in Christ. He is the king of righteousness and he has a tent. And just as David appoints people to worship him, so Jesus, the king of righteousness, as part of his whole administration of his kingdom, appoints people to worship him. And he clothes them with his gift of righteousness. And he causes them to sing for joy. And he empowers them to worship. And he anoints them with his spirit. Are you getting this? There's a big package which comes with the restoration of the tent of David. Just go with me to Ephesians 4, just to complete this. Well-known verse, but I like to highlight one or two things. So verse 8, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So this is actually a quote from Psalm 68. So the context is the ark going into Jerusalem. The context is this new covenant. The context is the change of rules. The context is greater glory. The context is a release of power. It's a release of the covering of righteousness. It's a new dimension of grace in contrast to an age of law. It's where the mercy of God can be accessed and there's no limit to the mercy of God. And just as David gave gifts to his people, so Jesus gives gifts to his people, but he doesn't give us raisin cakes and fig cakes. He gives us anointings of the Holy Spirit, which are sweet. And then he talks about you know ministers doing a job, but um, verse 10 is a key. It says, he who descended is also he who ascended far above the heavens, so that he may fill all things. In the beginning of the book, Paul talks in that about an administration suitable to the fullness of time. So it's talking about there's an administration across the earth and across the heavens which Jesus is setting up. It's prefigured by what happened with David, but it's being brought to fullness. And what David established, Jesus is bringing to full. We say the tent he had in the natural and is, is the beginnings of something which has a, a fuller reality in the spirit for us here and now. And just as David had this covering of the gift of grace of righteousness, the anointing of the spirit, powerful prophetic anointing, we have all of that and more. And more. And more. And it's not just for select people of his court, it's for all of us. Now, how does the 24-7-3-6-5 work for us? Well, you know, you wake up on a Monday morning, you're feeling lousy, but you say, I'm going to praise the Lord anyway. You've done your bit for that moment. And somebody else is doing that five minutes later, and somebody else is doing that the other side of the world 12 hours later. And, and so there's a continual sacrifice of worship going up from the people of the Lord. We, we can say we are walking worshippers. We are walking worshippers. But nevertheless, it is fitting that the church ministers to the Lord with songs of rejoicing. It's fitting that we, we use instruments. It's fitting that we bring songs of joy. It's, and it's appropriate that it's clothed with the prophetic anointing. Kind of getting ahead of myself. So that basically is saying all of that. You know, we're in a better covenant. It has better promises. There's a new law. It's the law of love. And the worship is 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 worship of intimacy from the heart. Somebody said that. You know, David had that relationship with God. The intimate relationship with God. We're not worshiping from a distance. We go right in, in spirit and in truth, and it becomes 
prophetic worship which the Holy Spirit fills. So it's not like we have to worship, it's we get to worship. We get to worship by the power of the Spirit. This again, it's just a little aside, but you know, the lowly tent of Jesus, I'm going to mention how David was a, you know, he was born lowly. And um, you know, Jesus says he had no state before the majesty that we should look upon him. You know, if you met Jesus in the street, you wouldn't have thought he was anybody special. But he was an ordinary tent that the wind blew on him and the door flapped open and you could see the glory of God. So what we're saying, the significance of David's tent, it was a new order in Israel, it interrupted Moses' order. It was a window of grace and an age of law. So with the Solomon's temple, Moses' system kicked back in, basically. Um, prophetic portrayal, prototype of new covenant grace, what we're saying. So the key to freedom from Moses' law, like we said, is a new covenant, new priest of new law, which God gave to David as a pattern. Christ. Let's just think a moment for David's worship team. Andrew's going to be picking this up about how we enter into the dynamic of it all. Um, you know, so Asaph, Heman, Juduthan, they worship 24-7 to honour the Lord because he was worthy. Called prophets who said that empowered worship. So we, we've said all of that basically, so it is for us. And basically we said this, you know, David saw, it's in the psalm, sacrifices of praise are higher than the sacrifices of animals. I will, I will offer in his tent sacrifices of shouts of joy. Go with me to 2 Chronicles 29, 25. So this is in the time of Hezekiah. So from verse 20, the re-establishing the sacrifices, and then 25, he then stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with harps, and with lyres, according to the command of David, and of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan, the prophet, for the command was from the Lord through his prophets. Now that's a significant verse. It's saying that what David instituted wasn't a nice idea. You know, it would be nice to have you know, an organ instead of a piano or something like that. This was prophetically established. What David established is 24-7-365, rejoicing worship before the Lord, was a command from the Lord through the prophets, through David, Gad and Nathan. And you find there is nowhere in the Bible where this command is rescinded. There is nowhere where this is rescinded. Rather, it continues and it goes to a higher level, like Paul says, speak in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, we had that mentioned earlier. Hebrews offer a sacrifice of praise continually. Um, so our worship is to be 24 hours a day, all of our lives. So once you start seeing this picture, you can see the allusions to it in the New Testament. Clear allusions to it. Like in Hebrews, and Paul does. Again, we said all of this, it's the sacrifice which David offered as king of righteousness 
open the heavens on the nation. Jesus has done that. He opens the heavens on us. So we don't, you know, we're not trying to get open heaven. We have open heaven in Christ. It's not our prayers which bring the open heaven. It's our prayers which receive the open heaven. Big difference. Light and grace beam from the veilers tent. So, you know, when, G- when John sees Jesus in Revelation, he sees him basically dressed like a glorious high priest with his face shining like the sun. It's that first few chapters, it's almost a little bit like the last time we see Jesus, he was ascending from the earth going into the clouds. And it's like, this is the next time we see Jesus. It's like, this is the result, this is the outworking of the work of the cross. And he's shown as the high priest, I suggest he's shown as the high priest, his face shining like the sun, and his face is proclaiming, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord make his face shine on you. And we see there's not 10,000 angels in Revelation, and we see there's not 20,000 angels in Revelation. We see there's 10,000 times 10,000 angels. So it's like the glory has gone up orders of magnitude beyond imagination in Christ. This is what we have come to in Christ. Do we have less? Do we have more? We have far more. We have far more, which God is inviting us into. And there's grace for the church. So the natural response is worship, flowing in spirit and in truth. Just a little moment on this, when David said, I want to build you a temple. And the Lord said, no, David, um, your son's going to buy it, build a temple. Does anybody, who knows of Tommy Tenney? Some do, he's an American revivalist. Uh, one of the books he, he's written is about David's tent. It's called God's Favourite House. It's well worth a read. It's not a very big book, but it's well worth a read because it really takes you into the passionate heart of David to worship the Lord. But we say one of the, the his premises is basically, a paraphrase of this passage is, David... I know you've got a nice house. I'm glad you've got a nice house. I like the idea you want to build me a magnificent palace, but actually, how can a palace really reflect my glory? In actual fact, you haven't really realised it. You've not caught on to the fact that what you've actually got at the moment with your humble tent, I like better. That's my favourite house. Because it prefigures something which is coming. It prefigures you and 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 I. Because we are now God's favourite house. We are these humble, lowly tents, like Jesus was a lowly tent. We are humble and lowly tents. But the glory of God is in us. And when the wind blows on us, the glory is observable. And we're appointed as these worshippers. So God was saying... I prefer the house you already have and actually through your dynasty I'm going to re-establish it. So we see there's this word play. So in Amos when it says in that day I will raise up the fallen booth or tent of David probably the context you have to say is more looking to his dynasty rather than the tent which he had with the ark in. And when God says to David, I know you want to build me a big house, but I'm going to build you a house. Again, you've got this word play. So David's thinking of house, but God is speaking dynasty. And we can conclude from that, there's a house and a tent or a, and a dynasty and the part of a package. The part of a package. So when the the tent of David is restored in Christ. It's both his throne, his dynasty, 
and the worship tent. But the worship tent's no longer bought from B&Q or whatever it is down the road. The worship tent is us, like we're saying. And we bring these sacrifices of worship. This is the true altar of incense. We see that reflected in Revelation, don't we, with the harp and bowl type worship. What gave David access to all of this? Basically, it was a fundamental hunger for God. There was something God saw in David's heart. Like God said concerning Jacob and Esau, Esau I've hated, but Jacob I've loved. God saw something in the heart of Jacob, twisted as though he was, which still was of value to God. God saw something in the heart of David which pleased him, and so he, he breathed his life into it, just as God breathes his life into us. It was a, a deep hunger for God, and God opened up to him realms of God which were impossible for any other people of his age. But he brought a nation into it. And that's possible for us through Christ. Similarly, he is bringing us into the fullness of what he has and who he is. So David's worship continues. We're just getting near the end. The tent of David in his time, it was just a window because, in effect, it was still a time of blood sacrifice. Christ hadn't come. There was no continuing blood on the mercy seat. Um, things did start to go wobbly for David and his kingdom. Um, and so Solomon's temple, with the reinstitution of Moses' system, became necessary until Jesus came. But in actual fact, David, as we saw, he said... What I've started around my tent, it continues in the temple. And the suggestion is that both Moses' tent was taken down, folded up, and put in a cupboard in Moses, in Solomon's temple. And probably David's tent was also taken down and put in a cupboard in Moses' temple. And what that is saying is, is that David's covenant and Moses' covenant tracked in parallel in the temple. We said Jesus inherits Melchizedek and David's throne. At the cross, Moses' order ends. Jesus is the one sacrifice for all time. There's no need anymore for animal sacrifices. Hebrews says he takes away the first order to establish the second. But David's order continues. Like we said, Jesus also appoints continual righteous heart worshippers to minister to the Father. And they are clothed with the Spirit to bring empowered prophetic worship. So just to finish with, I have a diagram here which kind of summarises this. So we have Mr. Moses, Mr. David, Mr. Solomon... Jesus and us in the church. So Moses introduced the old covenant. I know I'm not talking much about the Abrahamic covenant, it's not a Noah's covenant and so on, that's not a teaching, but we say these three work together in this way. So the old covenant had its Levitical Aaronic priesthood with continuing animal sacrifices. That was the legal framework for grace as it was limited grace and that continued up to the time of Jesus but I show this dotted line in the time of David because it was partially suspended by David's covenant which kicked in which was according to the Melchizedek priesthood a different priesthood and now the sacrifices were ones of praise and worship because we say in, in figure the sacrifice was offered one time only at the beginning. There we go, Moses was partially suspended during David's reign. So the cross of Jesus brings an end to Moses' order. So this is a fundamental principle of the New Testament and the New Covenant. 
which the Council of David ratified. The new covenant begins and it's higher than uh, Moses' covenant. It's higher than David's covenant. Jesus himself the sacrifice for all time. But what happens to David order? You see it goes through the cross and it joins in the new covenant. David's order continues through the cross and goes to a higher level in Christ. So the new covenant includes the Davidic covenant and the Melchizedek order. It comes to fullness. Any questions? <laughs>